Welcome everybody. I'm very glad to have you guys all here tonight. Yeah. We're going to press on with covenant and kingdom and talking tonight about the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. Um, so let me pray and then we'll jump right in. Father, we do thank you so much for the blessing that it is to be here this evening with your people, Lord. And we thank you that you have uh, spoken in your word, that you have left a historical record of your work in the world. And Father, we're just so grateful that you have seen fit to enter your spirit into us, Lord God, to give us enlightened hearts and opened eyes, Lord, to receive your glorious revelation. Father, I do thank you that everything in the universe and everything throughout history testifies to you. And Lord, I just pray that we would have eyes to see all that you're doing, not only what you have done, but what you are continuing to do to bring about your purposes, to build your kingdom under our Lord and our King Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we discussed... Um, that in-between period, after Israel entered the land and before David became king, there was this very scattered, disjointed, chaotic period um, where there was no national head over Israel. There was no king, no covenant head. And so that led to a very, um, like I said, sporadic, not a lot of, uh, there was no consistent justice executed and so we examine that period and throughout that period the question in the background is who is the king supposed to be we had moses we had joshua god's anointed leaders but then after that there was no consistent leader god would sporadically raise up judges but there was no consistency there was no generational continuity and so there's that question of who is the king so tonight we're going to talk about God firmly answering that question, and not just in the immediate sense, but for the rest of Israel's history, God answers that question of who the king is um, in his covenant with David. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7, and then we're also going to turn over to Psalm 89. <clears throat> so 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established 
forever. And then we'll turn over to Psalm 89, which is in some ways kind of like a like an inspired commentary on 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David. Psalm 89, we are going to read verses 19 through 37. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, and my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in the throne of the heavens, as in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So that's where we're jumping off tonight. God's covenant with David. And you see God making it in 2 Samuel uh, through Nathan the prophet. You see God speaking to David. And then you see generations later that very covenant being reflected on and being appealed to by the psalmist. Um, one thing to keep in mind. So the, you know, the title of this class is Covenant and Kingdom. These two themes in scripture are very much tied together. As we've talked about throughout this class, God uses covenant to establish kingdom. And every kingdom that God establishes anticipates a full consummation. And what we mean by consummation is just... (coughs) What we mean by consummation is just the, um, the full realization of the promised blessings. Come on in. Um, practice. You guys might want to vacate the couch. Here. This is why I brought. Yeah, you're pointing, guys. Okay. He needs a cover. Well, he can't see on me. No, you can have the cover. Yeah, we have to go in the trunk. Take the cover. Okay. Nathan, you can sit in the corner here. No. That's okay. Well, just one is. Here we go. Go ahead. If you slide down. Oh. You're good. All right, all right. Here's the outlines for tonight. We are just getting started. Oh. Now they all left. Um, I think we're good. Thanks, Tom. All right, so. Consummation, what we're talking about with that is the full realization of the promised blessings. It's the, you know, fulfillment of every promise. It's uh, receiving the entire inheritance. That's what we mean when we talk about consummation. So every kingdom anticipates that full consummation. So if you remember, with Adam in the garden, um, the covenant that God made with Adam was a covenant of works. And um, Adam failed in the works. He failed to bring the kingdom of creation to consummation. Because of his sin, 
curse came upon all of creation. And so the kingdom of creation did not reach its full realization in Adam, right? And then, of course, God's covenant with Abraham that kind of kicked off the old covenant, it has, as we've talked about, both grace and works elements. Uh, We talked about how the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are guaranteed corporately by God's grace, but individually and generationally, those blessings are enjoyed uh, according to works. However, because God has guaranteed those promises by grace, we know that the kingdom of Israel must reach its full consummation. It can't fail to attain the glory that God designed for it. The way that creation failed, because the kingdom of creation, God's covenant with Adam, that was wholly based on Adam's works. God's covenant with Abraham ultimately is promised fulfillment by God's grace. And so you will see the kingdom of Israel come to consummation. And we see this bit by bit throughout the Old Testament, even with the birth of Isaac, right? That's the very beginning of God fulfilling the promises to multiply Abraham and make out of him a great nation. Or you have uh, with the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the land of Canaan. You have the Israelites, Abraham's offspring, now inhabiting the land that God promised Abraham. Um, The tabernacle being built. That was God fulfilling his promise to be God with them, to be their God dwelling among them. And so you see bits and pieces of these promises that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis starting to reach their fulfillment. And yet, as we talked about last week, because of the period, you know, that period of the judges, And the the fact that there was no head over Israel, there was no king who united all of God's people under that one headship, there was no, it was necessary for that king to come and bring the kingdom to its full consummation. Does that make sense? They they were anticipating that king. Um, If you guys want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, because there's another interesting... um, uh, another inter- interesting element of what the people of Israel were to look for for this kingdom to become consummated. So there was the king uniting all of them who would kind of bring Israel into its glory. Um, so the fact that there was no king tells us that there's still more to come. Also representative of this pre-consummate state is the fact that there's no centralized place of worship, no centralized dwelling place of God. If you look at Deuteronomy 12, before the people enter into the land, beginning in verse 8, God says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from your enemies all around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. So God is telling them, and you even see in there that phrase, you shall not do everyone what's right in your own eyes. That's exactly what we saw in the period of the judges. There was no king. There was discontinuity. There was disjunction and dysfunctionality, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. When God brings the people into their rest, that's the other thing you saw there in Deuteronomy. He says, as yet, you have not entered into the rest that I have for you. And he says that when you enter the land and when I've given you peace from your enemies, when the enemy is conquered, you enter into that rest. That's the consummation. And a sign that that's come is going to be that God is going to select one single place for him to dwell and for all the people to bring their sacrifices, one central location of worship. 
And so the fact that God is still dwelling in the tabernacle, in that tent, it shows that the kingdom of Israel is still not yet fully consummated. And so the expectation under the Old Covenant is that fully consummated rest for the kingdom of Israel. And so God, as we talked about last week, you know, he raises up Saul as judgment against the people. And then David finally ascends to the throne. And after God establishes and then confirms David as king, and there's all sorts of drama with that, there's a civil war that goes on before David is finally king over all 12 tribes of Israel. After all of that, God makes his covenant with David. And in that covenant, God indicates that it is the house of David which is going to bring the kingdom of Israel into its consummate rest. So it is the Davidic covenant we're talking about tonight. Uh, that's the means by which God brings the old covenant uh, to its consummation. Does that make sense? Because remember, we've talked about how all those, the Abraham, Moses, and David, those three covenants, they all work together to form the old covenant. And so they, you know, they kind of arrive in stages. They naturally flow into one another. And so the Davidic covenant is going to bring all of those to their heights. So we're going to see that tonight. And so we're going to look at this covenant that God makes with David. And so you remember the elements of a covenant that we talk about with all the covenants that we've uh, gone through so far. Promises, what uh, the, the blessings that God uh, that God promises to go with the covenant. You have the precepts, which are the covenant law, what God expects. Um, the, I forget even myself, the federal head, uh, that shows who's the covenant representative. That's how you find out who is in the covenant, who's connected to the head. And then, of course, the sanctions. Always important, the sanctions that, uh, that give teeth to the covenant because a covenant is a solemn vow with divine sanctions. There has to be consequences for disobedience. So the promises of the Davidic covenant, primarily the main, well, there's actually a lot of promises here, but kind of foundational, core to this promise is the surety of David's house as being the head over Israel is David having the kingly line. Second Samuel 7:16 God says your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you have there the essential promise is that God is going to establish David as the king over Israel and that that is going to flow through his sons Throughout all generations, it's a certainty that God has established David as king. And this is a major departure from the time of the judges or um, even the time of Saul. You have it in there, right there in 2 Samuel 7. He said, My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. With Saul, uh, the kingdom was never secure. Even from the very beginning of Saul's reign, there was warnings from David against appointing Saul as the king. And then Saul, he went well for a short while, but then it was one thing after another that sort of delegitimized his kingship until God tore the kingdom out of his hands and gave it to David. But that's different here. So with the period of the judges and with Saul, there was no principle of succession that God established. God had anointed leaders in the past, right? He anointed Moses. He anointed Joshua. He anointed the judges. All of them were filled with God's spirit, but there was never this principle of succession. When the next generation came up, it was always a question, well, now who's going to lead us, right? That's what happened. When Joshua died, then everyone forgot about the Lord and there was no leadership and things went south. Same thing. After the judges died, the people would quickly return to their idolatry. Now with David, God is establishing not just a single leader, but a succession of leaders, a sure line of leadership from David down through his sons. And this, of course, translates then to stability in the kingdom. Was that? 
Yeah, to that line of kings that translates to stability in the kingdom. And so this really is kind of the definitive end of the period of the judges, where no longer is it this wild, chaotic, everybody does what's right in his own eyes, and every generation has to reinvent the wheel. Now, with David and with this covenant, God has set firmly, this is going to be the stable line. This is going to be the head over all of Israel. And so there's great stability. There's continuity from generation to generation. The people finally would have a righteous leader as well in David and in his sons. One who uh, was going to fulfill that kingship that we talked about of Deuteronomy 17 last week. When we looked at Deuteronomy 17, what the king was supposed to be, how he was supposed to respect God's law and obey it. Now God, through David, had raised up a righteous king who would lead the people in righteousness, who would execute justice, one who the people could imitate, who they could follow. And again, you don't have that question every generation of now who's our leader going to be. Um, and also it's very significant. The promise is of an everlasting throne. It's not simply, you know, for a short period of time or for some defined period of time. God promises David an everlasting throne. And that's a promise that Israel took seriously. If you flip back over to Psalm 89 that we read, verses 28 and 29, we read, My steadfast love I will ever keep for I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. And then down 35 through 37 reads, once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever as a faithful witness in the skies. The people understood and cherished the fact that God promised David an everlasting throne. His throne was supposed to last forever, and it was supposed to provide that united stability in the kingdom of Israel. And this promise, this covenant was so certain that what Psalm 89 is, is a plea to God. If you read the last section after where we stopped, it's a plea to God to remember his covenant with David and to restore the people of Israel. The people of Israel are under discipline and the psalmist is crying out to God, remember your covenant, restore us to yourself, bless us for the sake of David, your servant. And so that's how certain the Israelites took this covenant that uh, even under the hand of God's judgment, they were still appealing to God's covenant with David as their foundation for God bless us, God restore us. Um, so they saw that they're calling out to God's mercy according to his covenant with David. So that's one of the major promises of this covenant, surety, stability, continuity, uh, that everlasting throne you also have the promise of rest and security under David, uh, under the kingship, I should say. 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 and 11, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies so what you have there, God in this covenant makes the promise to David that he is going to give rest and security to the people of Israel. And so that's always the hope of God's people is to enter into God's Sabbath, right? From the very beginning of creation, God worked six days, rested on the seventh day. God created Adam to work, but if Adam had completed his work faithfully, he would have entered into God's rest. Same thing with the people of Israel. You know, you, we saw it in Deuteronomy. God has said, you've not yet entered into your rest. Joshua is supposed to take them into their rest. There's always this talk about rest and the Sabbath. And so what God's promising here to David is that now the people are going to enter into that Sabbath. I'm going to give them peace from their enemies. I'm going to give them rest, prosperity, security. 
Again, that's a sign of consummation. When you enter into that Sabbath of God, that's consummation. That's the, the covenant, the kingdom coming to its fullness. Um, you know, and that's that's always what God's people uh, what God's people crave and desire that rest from labor. You know, the last enemy finally being defeated, and now you know we can enjoy. Um, so that's the promise that's held out for the people of Israel. They're told that there's going to be no foreign oppressors, nobody on their borders coming in to invade them, and that had been the problem for Abraham's offspring. Since they went off into Egypt, right, they had been under foreign oppression. They were slaves in Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness. Then they entered into Canaan, and they had to fight all these battles. And still, throughout the period of the judges, there were enemies assaulting them on every side. With the king, with this Davidic covenant, God says that no more of that. I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. I'm going to give you rest. Um, And again, that stability comes from having that righteous king who's been anointed by God's spirit, a strong king who is capable of defending his people because God's spirit is with him and his spirit has not departed the way that it did with Saul. Um, All good? Make sense? So rest and security is another promise. And then the third promise is kind of what we talked about, that permanent dwelling of God, the central location of worship. Verses 12 and 13. God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So again, you saw this anticipated in Deuteronomy. God was going to choose this central location for his name to dwell. It wasn't going to be the tabernacle, right? Um you know, during the period when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God dwelt in a tent like his people. But now God's people have been planted. And so God's uh, God's own dwelling place should also be planted. And God is going to dwell with them as their God. That was the promise to Abraham. that I will be your God. That was God's promise to Moses, to the people of Israel. I will be your God. You saw the tabernacle express that, but now with the building of the temple, that's that firm, established, this is our God, this is his dwelling. He is not going to be moved, and we are not going to be moved from this place. And also, the um, the fact that the throne of God and the throne of the king are going to be together in the same location in Jerusalem and Zion, That's that also... Um, the, the fact that they dwell together geographically and physically, it ties these thrones together. And it really gives you a picture that the rule of the king in Jerusalem is very truly the one who is God's king, who's ruling on God's behalf. Um, and this is why you remember in Second Samuel 6, when they bring the ark to Jerusalem and David's dancing and there's a huge celebration, that's the reason why they're celebrating so much is because now God's throne, the ark, is dwelling with the king, is dwelling uh, in you know this central location with you know the the civil ruler, and really that is even though the temple is kind of the final fulfillment of this promise when the ark comes to Jerusalem under David, that's sort of the beginning of God fulfilling this promise to establish his central dwelling place. You know what I mean? Um, because the, the ark was the throne of God. That's what, uh, you know, what, what indicated the presence of God. And it also indicates to us the union um, of God's people in both their civil life and in their religious life, in their civil life and in their worship, Again, under the period of the judges, you know, you saw judges come from all different tribes. There was no set leadership, and people were kind of worshiping wherever they wanted, building altars wherever. But now you have the civil authority and the, you know, religious authority in the temple, both of them intrinsically tied together in this one location. And also, as I mentioned before, it points to the permanence of the kingdom of Israel. The fact that God is dwelling not in a tent, but in a stone palace, in a house of stone and wood, that God is going to dwell there 
It gives that sense of permanence that God's dwelling place is going to stand and be established and is not going to be overrun. Um, you know, that, that, that that strong king is going to defend God's dwelling place. This is God's place, right? All that makes sense? So those are some of the very significant promises. And the promises reach their climax then under Solomon when he builds the temple. So I want you guys to flip over to 1 Kings chapter 8. Because this is where all these promises made to David reach their climax. And it really makes sense. You know, I think it can... You can wonder, you know, well, how come God told David not to build the temple? David wanted to build it, but God said, no, your son will build it. And why is that? I believe that part of that is because succession was such an important part of the Davidic covenant. The fact that the next generation's leadership was already figured out, and the one after that, and the one after that, there wasn't that kind of instability. And so... It seems very natural for David's son in kind of marking that continuity to be the one who builds the temple because when Solomon ascends to the throne, that's confirmation of God's covenant with David that we are going to have a ruler for this next generation. And then Solomon faithfully builds the temple and you have that consummation. So, you know, it makes sense that it's not until that next generation of rulers comes up that the consummation happens because that was a central promise from God. So it really is natural. But 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to read verses 10 through 21. So this is King Solomon. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. Now, it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then if you look over to verse 56, Solomon continues, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. So you see it there with Solomon. Um, This is the pinnacle of Old Covenant blessedness. This is the height of the Old Covenant. Um, Every single promise, if you remember all the way back to Genesis 12, God's covenant with Abraham, every promise that God made to Abraham has been fulfilled. God said that he would multiply his offspring. In 1 Kings 4, we're told that the number of Israel was as many as the sand. Um, God said that... uh, that they would dwell in the land of Canaan. Israel is ruling now in peace over the whole land of Canaan at rest from their enemies under Solomon. God said that he was going to have kings come from Abraham's line to rule over his people. And you see it with David and then with Solomon. And God also promised that he was going to be their God. He was going to be with them. And of course we see that in the temple. So, 
absolutely everything that God promised to Abraham in that covenant has come to pass now here with Solomon. Um, and so truly we can say that this, 1 Kings 8, this is the consummation of the Old Covenant, the consummation of the Kingdom of Israel. This is the climax of the entire Old Testament. This is the golden moment for Israel. This is what God had been building towards since he called Abraham out of the wilderness. Now, of course, we're going to see in just a minute that the Old Covenant proves itself to be insufficient, but this is the height of all of God's earthly promises that he made to Abraham. And this Old Covenant consummation, it does typify the consummation of Christ's kingdom. If you guys flip over to Revelation 21, because we can see the, you know, I, I want you guys to understand the glory of what's going on here under Solomon with the building of the temple and how it really does foreshadow uh, God's final per plan and purposes, consummating the entire creation as a kingdom to Christ. Revelation 21, uh, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then go down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and his lamp, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then on to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so you see those same elements that we see under the old covenant in the kingdom of Israel what do we see in the consummated new covenant at the end of history? We see a city with innumerable inhabitants, like the kingdom of Israel with its as many uh, people as there was sand on the seashore. Um, we see a glorious king, just like King Solomon, only here we have the Lord God and the Lamb reigning as the king. We see a temple, right? There's no physical temple, but God himself is the temple, because the temple, what is the temple but the presence of God, God dwelling among his people. So we see that. And then we see, of course, peace, nothing detestable, nothing unclean, no threat of enemies to assault. And so the Old Covenant consummation, it points very vividly to what we are expecting and hoping for in the consummation of Christ's kingdom. And so like I've said, throughout this whole class, we look at the Old Testament, we look at the Old Covenant, we should see it as obviously meaningful, significant, absolutely in its own context, but ultimately it is one huge, elaborate, glorious type that points to what God is doing through Christ, right? Because that's that's the one promise to Abraham that we haven't seen fulfilled yet is that blessing to the nations that's going to come from him. And so we see that great picture in the Old Covenant. Is there anything you guys have to add to that or any questions? All right, so those are the promises of the Davidic Covenant. What about the precepts, the, uh, the covenant law? So... As with Abraham and with Moses, God's covenant with David 
has the elements of both grace and works. It has promises that are guaranteed by grace, but also that are enjoyed individually and generationally on the basis of works. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute here. Those works, um, there are a couple that are specific to the kingship. One of them is to build the temple. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.13, we saw that God said that your son is going to build this temple to my name. So that's one of the obligations required in this covenant is to actually build the temple. But a natural consequence of that is for the king to defend the temple. Um, One of the things actually that prompted Israel asking for a king in the first place is when the Philistines, back in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, the Philistines captured the Ark of God and took it out. They took God's throne into a sort of captivity. And that was one of the things that led to the Israelites clamoring for a king who was going to fight their battles, who was going to defend them. And so part of the king's role, if he's going to build this temple, is to defend this temple, to defend this holy dwelling place of God. And there's kind of a faint hearkening back to Adam's commission in the garden, where Adam was commanded to keep or to defend the holy garden. And if you guys remember, those of you guys who were there from the beginning, when we talked about that, there's somewhat of a priestly element to that. The the priests were to guard and to keep the holiness of God, right? They were to stand guard over that. And so the king, as the defender of God's holy temple, certainly is not a priest, right? We know that. These offices are separate under the Old Covenant. And we see with Saul what happens when the king tries to act like a priest. However, there is this deep concern and obligation on the part of the king to defend God's holiness and to defend that which is set apart as holy. And so there is, that is a little bit reminiscent of Adam, who was the prototypical priest, guarding God's holy garden. David the king is to guard God's holy temple. Another obligation of the king is uh, to obey God's law and to lead the people in obedience. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 14, God says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. The expectation there is for God to, uh, I'm sorry, is for the king to, uh, for the king to obey God's law. If we think back last week when we talked about Deuteronomy 17, right? The king was to write out a copy of God's law, to have it in his heart, and to obey it all his days. The king was to serve as that public example of an obedient servant of God. Um, He was to lead the people and obey. He was to kind of be the chief example of obedience to the law, and he also was there then to execute God's judgment. And this was, as I mentioned, a public task on God's part to establish and lead the people in public righteousness, executing public justice according to the law. And so the nature of this task of David, to obey the law, to keep it, um, to live it out, to demonstrate it publicly, it also kind of reminds us of... Adam's role in the garden. Adam was trust was entrusted with revelation from God. He was entrusted with a law from God, and he was to embody that law, to proclaim that law, to teach his wife, to proclaim it to the serpent. And that was, as we noted at that time, kind of prototypical of the prophetic office, the prophet who proclaims God's law both in word and in deed who makes known the righteousness and the justice of God. Again, the king is not necessarily a prophet as far as the office in the Old Testament, right? You know, we right now it's Nathan the prophet who's talking. We think about Elijah and Isaiah and those prophets who exercise that office. But the king does have a prophetic role in proclaiming and living out God's law. And so... Ultimately, what we see in the king's duties under the Davidic covenant, it calls us right back to Adam in the garden. Um, And it 
foreshadows the prophetic, <coughs> priestly, and kingly offices that find their culmination in Christ. Because ultimately, from the prototypical kingdom of Eden to the typological kingdom of Israel to the full realization of the kingdom of Christ, the duties of the king really kind of boil down to defend God's holiness, proclaim God's word, and conquer God's enemies. That's the, that is the role of the king. And so we see that in Adam. We see that in David, and perfectly we see that in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Can you repeat what the, uh, I think you said the rules are? Yeah, to um, defend God's holiness, to proclaim God's word, and to conquer God's enemies. <clears throat> so then we have the promises, we have the precepts, and then we have the federal headship of the covenant, um, that again, it tells us who is in the covenant. You know, you connect your, you, if you're connected to the federal head, that means you're in the covenant. So with Abraham, Abraham was the head of all of his natural offspring. So if you were born into the family of Abraham, you were in the covenant. Uh, Adam was covenant was made with him representing all of his offspring. If you are born, you are in the covenant with Adam. You are accountable to those curses. You're under that. Um, when we get to Christ, we'll talk about Christ is the federal head of all of his people. When you are born again, you are in the covenant of Christ. You're in the new covenant. So with David, it's a little bit interesting because it, it does absolutely flow out of God's covenants with Abraham and Moses. This is a part of the old covenant corpus. <clears throat> but... Specifically and narrowly, this is not a covenant with all of Israel. When we talk about these specific privileges and duties that are found in the Davidic covenant, it is with David and David's offspring. So this is kind of a covenant within the covenant, you could think of, that you have all of Israel under Abraham, and then you have David and his offspring under this covenant. So in the immediate sense, this is establishing David's sons as the royal line. This is where uh, authority is going to lie in Israel. These are the blessings and the duties of the kingship. They belong to I'm sorry, to David's offspring. However, what this covenant then does, and tell me if you guys have, this is confusing. You can ask questions, feel free. What this covenant does is it establishes David and his sons as the federal head over the nation. So it, is, it, it, um, it, it makes the king the representative of the entire nation. He becomes in himself the representative of the old covenant. Does that make sense? Um, so now, whereas before, you know... You, we talked about last week when Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you kind of had throughout the period of the judges this idea of kind of families and tribes, you know, very imperfectly and sporadically obeying and disobeying God and suffering curse. And so it's all disjointed. Now with David, you have a covenant head and the enjoyment of blessing or the suffering of curses is going to flow to the people through the covenant head. Right, that the king is going to be held accountable. The blessings and the curses are going to be mediated through him. There, he is he becomes sort of the conduit either of God's blessing or of God's displeasure, of his favor or of his wrath. And so this absolutely, in contrast to the period of the judges, unites the people. So they are blessed as one or they are cursed as one, uh, depending on the faithfulness of the king, in large part. It doesn't work perfectly that way, but largely the king represents the whole kingdom, and when the king is doing well and obeying, then the people flourish and there is blessing. When the king is disobedient and rebellious, the people suffer curse and they languish under the curse. So that's all we mean when we say that this Davidic covenant it establishes a federal head over Israel. You have that one man who represents the entire nation. Does that make sense then? So the people 
are blessed or cursed together according to the actions of their head of the king. <clears throat> and then we have the... What's up? There, so this is... Were there previous federal heads of Israel, right? This is just like the, the, the new installation of So the federal head ultimately over the old covenant is Abraham, right? Because if you are born of Abraham, then you're in the covenant. But this is the first time there is that single national representative. Because yes, you had Moses, who was... He wasn't exactly the head. He was the mediator between the people and God. He had a very unique office. And then Joshua was sort of just a lesser Moses. But like we talked about last week, with both of those guys, that was before the people had entered into and settled into the land. And so since the people had become a kingdom, there was no federal head. And that was the problem with the with judges. That's why it says there's no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But now, for the first time, you have that set head over the people in David. Um, and then so we have the sanctions of the covenant. Every covenant has sanctions, has threats for disobedience. That's what makes it a covenant. Otherwise, it's just a promise or an agreement, but a covenant has threats of punishment for disobedience. And like I said, this has elements of both grace and works. Um, so the kings, because they have this kind of special responsibility over the people, they have a very special and unique accountability before God. And so God says in um, verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. The relationship between God and the king is a special relationship that is like a father-son relationship. And one thing that is consistent throughout scripture is that a father-son relationship is largely marked by discipline, that a faithful father disciplines his son. And so while all of Israel stood to be cursed for disobedience to the covenant law, the king in particular had a special responsibility, a unique responsibility to obey on behalf of the nation. And so he also had a unique uh, threat of curse, kind of taking that curse, being disciplined, being chastened on behalf of the nation. So that father-son relationship indicates, yes, a higher state of blessedness and closeness, but also more severe discipline, right? Because, you know, if you, you know, the one who you discipline, you're closer with that one. It's a closer and more, you know, beautiful and intimate relationship, but it also means there's going to be more discipline. And so that was the, um, that was the responsibility of the king. And so the sanctions of the old covenant, or I'm sorry, of the Davidic covenant, that's kind of the unique one with the king. But then otherwise, it really ties into this idea of federal headship because largely the sanctions are the same curses that are threatened in the Mosaic Covenant, but now they're mediated through the king. Um, and so, like we said, the nation as a whole now is going to experience discipline, chastening for the king's disobedience. If you flip over to 1 Kings chapter 9, you start to see this come to fruition. And it's just amazing. It's right after kind of the you know, the glory of First Kings chapter 8 in the temple. And then, you know, you things start to go downhill very quickly. Um, because So you have the, the threats of curses against the people mediated through the king. Ultimately, the punishment is the same as it was under the Mosaic Covenant, disinheritance, exile from the land, revoking of covenant blessing, um, being disowned by God. That's the ultimate curse of this covenant, just as it was with Moses, and as circumcision hints at, same with Abraham, unfaithfulness to the law leads to being cut off. Um, but if you look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 through 9, God says this to Solomon, he says, as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing 
doing according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but if you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So you see very clearly that those promises made to David are real promises. I'm going to establish your throne and keep it forever. But then here... There's real threats for disobedience. If you disobey, I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to cast you out of the land. You're going to lose the blessings. You're going to lose the inheritance. So you have that threat of, diso of disinheritance for disobedience. And again, now it's largely dependent on the king. So now instead of saying to the whole nation, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. That's focused on the one man, the king. If you obey and lead in righteousness, then the people experience blessing. If you go after idols, then curse. Um, so we mentioned this covenant is the third of the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, now the Davidic. Those together make up the old covenant. And like I've said many times tonight, the blessings of the old covenant, the promises to Abraham, to the people through Moses, and then to David and his offspring are guaranteed by God's grace because remember, God took that oath with Abraham. When God passed through the split animal pieces in Genesis 15, God called a curse on himself saying, I will fulfill all these promises. So they're guaranteed by grace. But at the same time, Abraham had to be circumcised and circumcise his children. The people of Israel had to obey God's law and, and engage in the sacrificial system. And the kings had to be obedient and lead the people righteously, otherwise curse and disinheritance. So the unfaithfulness of individual kings um, would lead to the curse on those uh, living during his time, but the obedience would lead to blessing. Again, not always that simple, However, that is the general rule and pattern that God establishes. And again, you see this example almost immediately after the construction of the temple. So just flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11, <coughs> verses 11 through 13. Um, you know, the glory of that consummate kingdom, and it appears like, yes, Israel, we have finally arrived, we've reached our rest, now let's enjoy and then what happens while Solomon is still king? 1 Kings 11, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, after he went off and took on his bunch of different wives from different places and started worshiping different gods, God says, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So you see here kind of a perfect picture of the corporate, big, grand scheme blessing that God guarantees by grace, but individually the curse that comes for disobedience, right? The works that bring you know, the, the, um, the, the blessings that depend on work. So God says, because I made this covenant with David, I'm going to keep part of the kingdom for you, but because you've disobeyed me, you're going to suffer curse, and the kingdom's going to be split. So not even one generation in to the Davidic covenant, and you already have what was a beautiful, united, glorious, consummate kingdom now split in two, and really it does go to show you the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. Because what we read in First uh, Kings chapter 8, that was as good as the Old Covenant was going to get. And it didn't even last to the end of Solomon's life. 
It shows the insufficiency of the old covenant to bring about the true consummation, the true rest that God made us for. And it's very similar, just like the sacrificial system could never actually atone for sin. It was a picture of how God was going to atone for sin, but it couldn't do it itself. So the kingship could not actually preserve righteousness. It was a picture of how God was going to establish and preserve righteousness, but it couldn't do it itself. So it shows the insufficiency of the entire Old Covenant. This is not God's final plan for the created order. And really what you see, the entire narrative of First and Second Kings, it is this exact theme. The disobedience, the persistent disobedience of God's people, and yet God remaining faithful to his covenant with David and continuing to maintain the son of David on the throne of Israel, even though there's disobedience, unfaithfulness, idolatry, cowardice, compromise, and all the rest, God maintains faithfulness to his covenant with David. First and second Kings, it is an amazing testimony of the surety of God's word. And for us, we should be thinking, if God is so faithful to keep his covenant with David, which was in part dependent on works and wasn't the full final plan, how much more should we trust God's faithfulness that he's going to keep his covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, who actually did everything that he was supposed to do and obeyed all of God's commandments. And so even though the persistent disobedience of David's sons ultimately did lead to disinheritance and exile being cut off from the land, just as God had threatened. Even though that ultimately is what happens, God's gracious purposes in the covenant uh, don't end up failing. Even though the people are kicked out of the land, flip over to the end of 2 Kings. 2 Kings <clears throat> chapter 25 because it ends on like kind of a strangely positive note at the end of Second Kings when the northern kingdom has long ago gone into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, where David's children reign, is now being taken off into Babylon. Um, it seems as if God's purposes have failed. His Abraham's offspring have failed. But if you look at the very end, verses 27 through 30, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in that year that he began, <coughs> I'm sorry, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. <clears throat> so even at the end of this narrative that ends with God's people in a foreign land and out of the promised land and you know cut off from the blessings that God had promised to Abraham, you still have this positive note. David's son is still alive. He's not finally killed. The line is not wiped out. And he actually is getting privileges in Babylon. And it foreshadows and looks forward to what is going to come next. Because we have to take seriously that God's covenant with David was to give David an everlasting throne forever. David was going to reign. The son of David was going to reign. And so... The people are carried off into exile. The temple is destroyed. The kingdom of Judah is in shambles. You know, there's no Davidic king on the throne. So it seems as though God's purposes have failed. But ultimately, the true son of David, the true, actual, literal, physical offspring of David will reign over a consummated kingdom, which was only foreshadowed by the kingdom of Israel. So for as great and glorious, and it was glorious that the old covenant kingdom was, it was just a shadow of what the greater son of David was going to do. So we can know that David's throne literally will be an everlasting throne because it is Jesus Christ, David's son according to the flesh, who reigns over all creation forever. And it's this principle, this understanding of the Davidic covenant that God is going to set David's son over the throne forever. It begins to 
shaped the expectations of God's people when they're in exile and then when they return to the land from exile. And that's what we're going to talk about next week is then how this mystery of the Messiah starts to take a more definite shape uh, through the kingship. Do you guys have any questions or anything to add tonight? All right, cool. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the firmness and the permanence of your word. Lord, we thank you that your purposes cannot be shaken. Lord, that when you have promised and determined to do something, it will assuredly be done. So, Father, we know that throughout all of history, you have kept your word. And we know, Lord, that to this very day you are keeping your word, that the Son of David reigns over heaven and earth, that all authority belongs to Jesus Christ, that the greater king, the second Adam, the true king over all creation is bringing all of it to a glorious consummation. And Lord, I pray that we would look forward to that with eager expectation and that that would drive us, Lord, to subdue everything to you, to glorify you with absolutely everything that we have, Lord, that you have put us on this earth for a short time, that we would maximize your glory with our lives. So, Lord, let us do that confidently, boldly, with courage and with zeal. In Jesus' name, amen.